0: Friends, Well, Jesus is King. Friends, this is uh, the earliest creedal statement of the church, Jesus Curio. The Lord Jesus is King. Friends, that is uh, central verity of the Christian religion. And that is at the heart of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus who saves is also the Lord Jesus who reigns. And friends, tonight, as we turn in our Bibles to Genesis 49, Genesis 49, we will be examining together in Genesis 49. Chapter 49, verses 1 to 12, we are being looking at the kingship of Christ, as he is revealed to us here as the Lion of Judah. That is the title of this evening's sermon, The Lion of Judah, Genesis 49. Friends, let us read together. The Word of God says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this precious promise of Christ. Father, we pray. Help us to see His beauty. Oh, spirit, come and lead us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, our glorious King. For we ask it all, Father, in His name. Amen. Well, friends, this is the end of Jacob's life. This is his farewell blessing to his twelve sons. Friends, Jesus, our, I'm sorry, Jacob here is blessing his twelve sons in his last act as the patriarch. Now, remember last week in chapter 48, we looked at how Jacob blessed Joseph in a private blessing where he blessed Joseph and adopted, as it were, Ephraim and Manasseh as sons so that Joseph's inheritance was the double portion. It was that firstborn inheritance that was given to Joseph. So we see Joseph's stature and honor as the one who has received the firstborn blessing. But now here in chapter 49, Jacob has gathered the whole of his sons. All 12 of Jacob's sons are gathered at his bedside, friends. And we, we, can, we can understand this, can't we? Many of us have been at the bedsides of loved ones as they have begun to pass away, as they knew their time was near. And we sat with them and talked with them. And friends, we know that in those moments, uh, Issues become crystal clear, and for Jacob, that has special significance because he's not only a man dying in faith, a man dying in Christ, and a saint going to be with the Lord, but he is also the patriarch, meaning, friends, that in this period, the patriarch himself embodies and demonstrates the threefold office of Christ. That is, Jacob is the king in that he's the ruler of the family. He is the one who is mediating the rule of God and redemption over his people. And we see also Jacob's role as a priest in that he is interceding for his his family. He is leading them in worship. He is offering sacrifices on their behalf. And we see, most importantly for our consideration today, that Jacob functions now as a prophet. That is that the word of God comes in through this man of God, through his servant Jacob. And so Jacob gives this oracle of blessing and he blesses his 12 sons. And it is on the one hand, looking to the past, uh, the history of Jacob with his sons. Uh, but it's also looking to the future and it's giving us glimpses into what God will do in the life of his people as the generations go by. Because in about 400 years, friends, this family of some 70 will now, will become a nation of millions. Well, Jacob calls his sons in verse one and he tells them what will happen in the days to come. So again, the oracle's main objective is to point to the future. And that's critical for our consideration because we are seeing in this blessing, um, The critical, all-important blessing of God's promised son of the Christ. So we see in verse 2, the call to assemble, to listen to Israel, your father. Again, Jacob is the patriarch. Jacob is the ruler. Jacob is the one that God has appointed to bless his sons in the name of God. And so in verse 3, we see that, as it were, Jacob is... Sitting on his bed, and he looks at each of his sons in order. And the first he casts his gaze on is Reuben. And what does he say of Reuben in verse 3? Reuben, you are my firstborn. Reuben, you are my first son. You are my first child. And in verse 3, Jacob describes what is the ideal of the firstborn, what Reuben should have encapsulated, and what, in a sense, He was the sign of from God. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. That is, Reuben, you were to embody and to signal God's blessing upon me. Jacob remembers that when he went over that Euphrates. when he went over into the land of Haran, when he went and to find a wife for himself, friends, he went with nothing. But God promised that he would bring him back to the land of promise and he would multiply him. So Reuben, friends, was that first fruits of the promise of God. So when Jacob looked at Reuben, his firstborn, his firstborn son, he said, "In you, Reuben, I saw the evidence of God's faithfulness. God would do for me what he promised. And you, Reuben, were to be the one that was the, the preeminent son, full of dignity, full of glory and honor. But then in verse four, we see that Reuben was rejected. He was rejected by God. He was rejected by Jacob. He, though the firstborn according to the flesh, would not and could not be the firstborn According to God's promise. Again, friends, we have seen this distinction again and again. It is one of the most critical motifs of the book of Genesis. This contrast between firstborn of the flesh and the firstborn of promise. Namely, God's promise. None of the firstborn according to the flesh inherited the promise. None of the firstborn according to the flesh in this line that we've traced all the way back from Eve herself were those whom God had chosen and set apart for himself. But friends, again, there is a firstborn son coming who will be the firstborn of the one who God will set apart, the one that God will ordain, who will be the preeminent one, who will be preeminent in dignity and power and strength. Again, what Reuben failed to be, Christ accomplishes in his glory, in his obedience to God, in his willingness to pour out his life as an offering for guilt. Friends, in a sense, our adoption is because of Christ's firstborn status because he is the firstborn son of God, we are in Christ counted as joint heirs with him. He has received all the inheritance and we have our share in Christ and thus we are inheritors with him. And so friends, we see the failure of Reuben in verse four, he's unstable as water. His character is that of of constant vacillating. He's fickle, he's untrustworthy. And Jacob again rejects him. He won't have preeminence. When well, one reason, the major critical reason was because he committed adultery. Remember that episode after Rachel had died? Rachel had a maid servant named Bilhah who was Jacob's concubine, meaning his wife of a lesser status. And Reuben, out of his own desire, went and was intimate with Bilhah. And remember, Jacob heard about it. And it seems as though Jacob... Didn't really make a big fuss about it at the time, but Jacob remembered it, and there was always a rift between him and his eldest son. And now on his deathbed, Jacob calls his son out and condemns him. You went up to your father's dead bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Friends, it is not the firstborn of the flesh who is to be the heir, but it is the firstborn of promise. And friends, we see the judgment of God upon Reuben for his sin. So friends, let us... Um, see God's great mercies. Uh, when sin is exposed in our lives, let us be quick to repent. Let us ask God the Holy Spirit to lead us to see our glory, our rest, our joy in King Jesus. In verse five, we see Simeon and Levi. And again, the idea is Jacob's moving around the bed. He's looking at his sons as he goes. And here's Simeon and Levi are together. And physically they're together and they're the second and third oldest. But also friends, they are... They're pretty bosom friends and he links them together and notice what he describes them as. First of all, the weapons of violence are their swords. These are violent men. These are men known for their anger, known for their wrath, known for their willingness and perhaps even enjoyment in spilling blood. Friends, these are, these are not kind men, Simeon and Levi. Let my soul not be counted among them. Jacob in verse six says, O Lord, I wish not to be joined with them. Let my glory not be with them. Again, friends, these men are at the present time among the assembly of the saints. They're among the people of God, but by all outward appearances and by the attestation of Jacob, though they are among the assembly of God's people, they are unbelievers. So friends, we have this one, Simeon and Levi, who are violent men, cruel men, unbelievers. And Jacob says, I wish not to be counted with them because my inheritance is not with them and their wickedness, for they are violent, wicked, sinful men. And he talks about how they, in their anger, they killed men in verse six, and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Friends, again, that's looking back to the incident at Shechem, where after Dinah, their sister was defiled, they concocted a scheme, the sons of Jacob, to convince Hamor and Shechem to have all the men of the city circumcised. And while they were impaired and weak and sore from their circumcision, Levi and Simeon led the brothers in and they killed all the men of that city. And they plundered their wives and children and they took all their livestock. And so here Jacob rebukes his sons and it seems like they even had fun delighting in, in hand-strunging oxen just cruelty to animals, uh, taking these healthy beasts and making them unfit to work or to do anything. Cursed to be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. Friends, the scriptures tell us again, uh, repeatedly, that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now friends, in the flesh, there is a certain excitement when we get angry, right? And there's a certain intensity and, and there's, There is the temptation to think that by our venting of our wrath and our fury, you know, it will be something good and productive. But the scriptures tell us that, that that anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Proverbs tell us again and again that an angry man is like a city without walls. He has no self-control. So friends, let us pray and ask the Holy Spirit to grant us calm and and a reasonable understanding to help us restrain those raging emotions when anger begins to swell. Let us ask the Father to help us to channel that frustration, to channel those emotions Uh, to him and to ask that he would help us to love, to honor him. Now, friends, there is a such thing as righteous indignation. You remember our Lord Jesus had righteous indignation when he drove out the tax collectors and the money changers in the temple, right? Zeal for your house, consume me, O Lord. And remember Jesus says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. Friends, there's a time for righteous indignation. But, friends, it is always for the glory of God, according to the word of God, in love for Christ and for his people. And, friends, we must be very careful uh, of that anger, lest it be of another kind. Well, that is the curse that is placed on Simeon and Levi, that for their anger and wrath, Jacob says, they will be divided. I will divide them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. Well, Levi was scattered. Levi had cities all throughout the territories of Israel. Uh, And Simeon itself was in within Judah. And eventually, it seems, got swallowed up by Judah. So their inheritance was co-mixed with Judah, especially in the divided kingdom, period. So we see these two cruel men, unbelievers by all evidences, cursed by their father for their fierce anger. And so these serve as a testimony of what not to do. This This is a contrast to Judah, verse six, Judah eight, verse eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. In verse eight, we see the honor of Judah. Remember that Judah has been trusted by his father. It was Judah who convinced Jacob to let Benjamin go with him down to Egypt. It was Judah that spoke on behalf of the brothers and pleaded with the vizier of Egypt, who they later found out was Joseph. That he would be a slave rather than Benjamin. It was Judah that Jacob trusted to go before the family to Egypt and prepare the way. Friends, this Judah is a testimony of God's grace. He was a wicked man. He was a proud man. He was a, a man filled with all manner of lust and emotions. And yet God had mercy on him and humbled him and brought him to himself. God saved Judah. And we see the power of that changed life, what God has done in Judah's life as now this prodigal son does not proclaim to be a prince. And he's going to have dignity and honor among, over his brothers. He will be victorious over his enemies and the tribes of Israel will bow down to him. In verse nine, we see the motif of the lion, the lion of Judah. Friends, uh, notice in verse nine that Judah is described as a lion's cub and then later as a lion and a lioness. And he is the one who has the prey and the one who is not disturbed by any. Friends, the symbol of the lion is that of courage, that of strength, that of boldness. And it speaks to the warrior king. The warrior king. Friends, this is another aspect of the portrait of the Messiah. Remember, all through our study of the Book of Genesis, we've been painting this portrait of the promised Son, this promised Christ, and I've told you that God's promises and prophecies—they're being layered one on another, and this is one of the first instances we see of the kingship. I know my drawing is terrible, but here's a crown—the kingship of Judah. And what we realize here is that this coming Son of Judah. Is going to be a warrior king. He will be one who will defeat the enemies of God's people. He will be the one to destroy the powers of darkness. Friends, we know this is true. We see in David's time because remember, Judah is looking first to David. David was victorious over the enemies of Israel against Philistia, against against the Ammonites, Moabites, and even those Syrians. But, friends, even greater victory was won by Jesus. He conquered through his death and resurrection. Friends, when Jesus suffered and died upon the cross, uh, it was the defeat of the kingdom of darkness. That was the fait accompli. That was the coup de grace. When Christ died and rose again, friends, the battle, the war was won. Uh, Victory was assured because, friends, what Jesus did upon that cross was that he paid for the sins of his people. He suffered the wrath that we deserve. He won righteousness for us. He gained for us the tree of life. All that we need to be reconciled to God, Christ won and achieved and received for us. Friends, indeed, much of the motif of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is that of a conquering warrior Returning to his glory. And friends, in his triumphant return, uh, what does Paul premise the triumphant return of Christ as? How does he describe it? He describes it like the triumphs of the Roman generals. You think of 1 Thessalonians, uh, friends, where Paul is talking about the, the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangels and Christ coming to bring his church to reign with him. Friends, that's the idea of the triumph of those victorious generals. So over and over in the scriptures, there's this theme of the warrior king. The Messiah to come, the Christ, the promised son, is a warrior par excellence, one who will defeat the enemies of God's people and will win victory for his church. In verse 10, we see another clear indication of kingship. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That is, Judah, you are marked out to be the one who should hold the scepter. You hold the keys of the kingdom, Judah. Now are the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now again, friends, we are looking through Judah to David, and we are looking from David to Jesus. Jacob's saying, what we see in David, who's coming, is but a glimpse, but a picture, but a taste of the everlasting kingship that will belong to the greater son of David. Because notice again, until tribute comes to him. Now friends, in our Bibles, it's translated different ways, sometimes in different translations. Because the phrase is, until Shiloh comes. And people have wondered, what does Shiloh mean? Does it mean the place, Shiloh? Does it mean tribute, as it's translated here? Could this be a title for Messiah? Well, friends, I think what we have here in verse 10 is probably a decent translation, tribute. But the real kicker to understand that is the second half of that, of that phrase. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, what Jacob prophesies is that what will come to Judah, that what will come to Judah's son, will be the obedience of the peoples. Notice it's obedience. So it is that of, of honor, of respect, of reverence. So this is not, this is a kingship that is of universal proportions. Do you see that? That this son of Judah, his kingdom, is one over the nations. And what did God promise to Abraham? In you, Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. Jacob is picking up that thread of promise and saying, Judah, this promised offspring, this promised son that's coming, it'll be through your line, O Judah. Your son will inherit a kingdom over not just your family, but over the nation's. He will rule over redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and language. I want to make one more quick remark on the obedience of the peoples. Friends, remember that the Scriptures always call us to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about his apostolic ministry in Romans 1 as being that of bringing about the obedience of faith. In short, friends, we cannot separate true living faith from obedience. They are inseparable. If we are born again and we are united to Christ by faith, we will desire and begin to do those things which our Lord commands. We will understand our duty as Christ's servants to serve. It is the natural, inevitable byproduct of faith. So if you don't have obedience to Christ, in some measure, you don't have true living faith. And if you don't have true living faith, you're not united to Christ. So friends, there is no such thing as a Christian who is united to Christ, who has no desire, and is not in some measure seeking to love, to honor and serve. Now friends, the saints can fall into great sin, and that is very true. But friends, God always brings his saints to repentance brings them back to himself. He brings them to repent and to return to him. So friends, as I've said before, we cannot have Jesus as our savior if Jesus is not also our sovereign. To deny his sovereignty over our lives is to deny him to be the savior because he is the savior who reigns and rules over us. So friends, let us be very cognizant of that. Let us you know, embrace that in our own gospel witness to our children That it's more than just letting Jesus come into your heart, but it's this Lord Jesus who comes in to save is also the one who comes to reign. So friends, let us be clear in our proclamation and friends, let us take it to heart in our own devotion that our Lord Jesus is calling us to know and love and serve him. Finally, in verses 11 to 12, we see some of the blessedness of the Messiah's reign. This son of Judah his reign and rule will be of blessings unparalleled in the history of the world, in the history of God's people. The blessings of God's Messiah will be so rich that it's like there is so much food, so much glory, so much honor in the kingdom that Judah will just tie his donkey's colt to the vine of the, of the grapes. That is, there's so many grapes being produced at the grape vineyard that the donkey can sit there and eat his full fill. And there is no lack for the owner of the vineyard. Blessing upon blessing, provision upon provision. Friends, you you know how when Jesus fed the 5,000, he always had leftovers? You ever wonder why Jesus always had leftovers? It was to demonstrate this, that the provision of God for his people is not only sufficient, but it is more than enough. It is abundance overflowing beyond what we could ever grasp or imagine. Friends, here we see the richness of the kingdom of God in Christ. So friends, remember your Lord Jesus isn't stingy. He is so good and faithful to give us the things that we need. This Messiah, verse 11, he washes his garments in wine. He's bathed in all the richness of the produce of the land. Uh, and in verse 12, the beauty of the king. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Friends, the beauty of the Messiah. So then, friends, this is a little picture and a foretaste of the kingship of Judas' greater son. The blessedness of the Messiah's rule. And friends, what Jacob saw in the distance, what he saw dimly the sun coming on the horizon of history, you and I have seen clearly in the word of God. We have seen this Lion of Judah with eyes of faith. He has come and he has lived and died and risen again and he now reigns over his church. So friends, let us rejoice in this king and let us also see the faithfulness of God's promise and the joy of living under his reign. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus. So spirit, help us to rest in the kingship of Christ in his rule over us and our church. Lord Jesus, please continue to lead our church that we may love and honor you in all that we do. Father, we ask for mercy in Christ's name.